Let's pray and ask God to help us, and then we're going to jump into our study of the book of Job. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word and how it comforts us, Lord, and how even in your perfect providence and sovereignty, you had had us prepared to study the book of Job before we ever knew that we would be in this situation. Lord, we couldn't even imagine a situation where we couldn't be together face to face, and yet you're going to prepare us even when we're completely oblivious to what's coming. And Lord, uh, that's encouraging for our hearts tonight. And so thank you for each one who's uh, logged in with us tonight, Lord, as we study your word. We pray that your spirit would work in and through it, Lord, that you would accomplish the work in us that you desire to accomplish. We thank you for your beautiful, amazing word and the wonderful things that only it can accomplish in our hearts. So give us ears to hear, we pray that we might receive with joy and gladness what you have to give us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're calling this series Undone. And as we study through Job, we're going to see when what is hard becomes holy. We're going to see all the amazing ways that the grace of God just surprisingly comes to us through the book of Job. This book is a blessing that's given to us by the Holy Spirit as we... Look at this story and the great beauty of all the emotional intensity that comes. Uh, We're going to address so many spiritual principles, but also so many practical, contemporary ways in which this book can minister to us and meet us right where we are. As many of you know, this book is considered to be the oldest book in the Scripture, and yet It's just amazing to me how it uniquely meets us in places that we are right now. It it will answer some questions that I think it better answers than any other place in the Scripture. And so in these weeks to come, I'm very excited about what God has in store for us. I want you to realize as we begin tonight that Job was a real man. He lived a real life. He lived in a real place. He served a real God. And this is not a a story about a mythical person. This is a real story about a real man. Now, let's jump in. If you haven't already downloaded the handout, you can do so on the live stream page on the website. And you can follow along here with the screen beside me. So most people believe that the central theme of Job is to answer the question, why did the creator and sovereign master of all things allow Job, a devout worshiper, to experience such unimaginable suffering? Whenever you hear people talking about the book of Job, they have a tendency to say, well, it's a book that tells us about why bad things happen to good people or why God would allow suffering or things of that nature. And it will, in fact, answer those questions. But that's not really the central question that this book is going to answer. There's a bigger question. There's a more ultimate question. And it's this. Would a man live righteously, honoring God, if he experienced loss and suffering unrelated to his own decisions and actions? This really gets to the heart of 
the message behind the book of Job. You know, Satan has always mocked God's plan for redeeming humanity by holding this position. His position is, however righteous a human might appear, submission to God's authority and responding to God's offer of redemption from sin is essentially motivated by self-interest based on the desire for guaranteed physical and material blessings and protection. You see, what Satan wants is he wants all of us to believe the prosperity gospel. He wants all of us to believe that we're just people who love God for what God can do for us. And that's always been his position, and that's always been what he's pressed for. He would say that if you take away the Christian's blessings, Satan argues, and watch the righteousness, the trust, and worship evaporate. You see, God created us to glorify Him. And in order for us to glorify Him, we have to love Him above other things, or we're glorifying other things. And from the very first verse of the book of Job, we begin to see that Life is about far more than physical or spiritual blessings. Let's read together Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. So right off the bat, we see the most noteworthy thing about Job was his devotion to God. He was blameless and upright, the Bible says. One who feared God and shunned evil. Now, the word blameless is a word that means in the Hebrew to be complete. Now, a lot of people get confused about this. And I want to make sure that we're clear. That blameless is not sinless. The Bible's not saying that Job was sinless. It's saying that he was blameless. Now, let's explain this a little bit. What is a blameless person? Because the Bible says even that we'll be presented blameless in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, when we stand before God. And so what does this mean, blameless? Well, here's what this means. A person who's blameless is a person who has learned how to deal with their sin the way God tells us to. You see, a blameless person can make horrible mistakes, can make horrible mistakes, and yet responds rightly to God when they do. Being blameless is not about being perfect. It's about understanding, fearing God, putting Him first above other things, and then responding rightly in repentance when we don't do the things that God calls us to do. You see, Job was complete because he lived his whole life in a way that honored God. You know, so many of us today in this culture, we have our personal life, and then we have our vocational or our work life, and then we have our church life, and we have these components or compartments of our life. But what we see right off the bat about Job is that he didn't have compartments, that all of these things were all together. They were all part of who he is, and that's sort of the way he lived his life as a 
a life totally wholeheartedly lived in devotion to God. Look at verse 2. He had seven sons and three daughters who were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Now, Job, understand, he wasn't wealthy because he was faithful. Again, let's clarify that the prosperity gospel is unbiblical in every way. Job wasn't wealthy because he was faithful. He was a faithful man who happened to be wealthy. And that's what the Bible wants us to see. He had prospered and he had a a big family and many possessions. And he happened to be a faithful man. Verse 4. Now his sons would go and feast in their houses, each one, each on his appointed day or his birthday, if you will, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. I want you to notice some things about this. First of all, look at, the, look at how Job's family is put together. He has adult children. And his adult children love each other and love to be together, which is a blessing. And that's something we should all wish for our adult children, that they would grow up and that they would still remain close to one another and love one another and also close to their parents. I think one of the greatest blessings that a parent can have is when their adult children still love to come home and visit them and be with them and when they love each other and love to be together. And it's a blessing when we can get together, even when, you know, our stage of life maybe moves our grown children out into different places. But when we're able to come together a couple times a year and be together, that we love each other and that we are encouraged by opportunities to be together as a family. That's that's a blessing. But notice what Job does. He, He offers an offering. Now, what kind of offering was this? Well, it's not a sin offering. He doesn't offer a sin offering on behalf of his children because you can't do that. Only... Uh, the sinner can offer a sin offering on behalf of himself. So what he does is he offers a burnt offering. And the scripture always presents a burnt offering as a symbol of dedication to God. So he's offering this offering of dedication on behalf of his children to God, like he's dedicating his, his children to God. And he's relentlessly pursuing and praying for them to be uh, devout followers of God and that they wouldn't turn their back on God. What we see here is a, a, a beautiful picture of a faithful father's concern for his children. I mean, what a, what a glorious picture that we need to see today in our culture. So many of you grew up like me without a father. And yet, here we see a picture of a man who after his, he's raised his children the right way and as they continue out 
to live their lives in devotion to God. He continues to uh, come before the Lord on their behalf and to pray to God. And even though they're grown adults and even though they're accountable unto themselves, unto God, Job doesn't, doesn't let go of his responsibility. It's a, it's a great challenge to all of us fathers out there that even though our children are grown, we still want to bring them before the Lord and we still want to pray for them and we still want to uh, intercede on their behalf in whatever ways we can before our, our holy and loving God. No matter what, whether our children are, are Job's children aren't, aren't prodigal, they're not in rebellion, and yet he's still doing this. It's a good reminder for us as parents. Look at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him about his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, first of all, if you want clarification about this meeting between God and the angels, you should listen to the Unseen series that you can find on our website where we uh, teach through uh, the heavenly host and the way they relate to God. And we'll get a little bit in and out of that through this study of Job. But suffice it to say that it only makes sense that God's angelic servants would present themselves before him because they're accountable to him. They do his bidding. They carry out his will. But they're his created beings and he is the Lord of all. And they're all accountable to him and under his authority. But present among them is an intruder. It's as if God's meeting with his heavenly host and then from, you know, entering from the side comes in one who's not one of the elect angels. But he is an angel and he comes in and God and him engage in this back and forth dialogue about testing Job. Now, when it comes to Satan, we have to remember that he's not some caricature wearing a red suit or carrying a pitchfork, but he's a powerful archangel. He's the most powerful uh, being that God ever created who is relentlessly working behind the scenes to destroy God's people and oppose God's plan. And that's his mode of operandum. That's what he does day in, day out, continuously at all times. And he's always looking for those whom he can 
deceive or discourage or sidetrack. And you notice that as I was studying this over the last couple of weeks, I kept reflecting on how whenever we're confronted with evil, like maybe when we see a story on the news of some person who has perpetrated some horrific or evil crime and um, they're interviewing them and you're listening to the things that they're saying, you realize that evil believes evil. You know, evil isn't perpetrating, a person, an evil person isn't perpetrating something that they don't think is true. They've been deceived into believing that it's true, and that's what causes them to perpetrate this evil. Well, you can see how in this dialogue, how Satan fully believes what he's doing. He believes that in his heart, he believes that Job is merely following God because of what God can do for him, which is an astonishing thing. Just how deceptive evil is. It's not, it's not just that Satan is the deceiver, but that he's deceived and is the deceiver. So let's clarify. There, this is not a, a, a picture of a great war between God and Satan where Job is stuck in the middle. Whenever I hear somebody say that, I think to myself, now, nothing could be further than the tr- from the truth than that. A, a great war? There's no war here. What war could there be? God is completely and ultimately in control. At no point is there a war. The war has already been won. There is no war. What this is, is this is a picture of a great and sovereign God who's in total control and has unlimited power, interacting with a created being who is wholly devoted to evil, who cannot touch Job without first asking permission. You see, you you think about it, in a war, one side doesn't ask the other side for permission to attack or for permission to move or to do something. It would be absurd to even think about that. You can see clearly that, that this isn't a war because one party is so obviously underneath the authority of the other that he can he can say the things that he believes uh, to be true no matter how false they are but he can't do anything without God first giving him permission so think of it this way this is not a battle this is not warfare between God and Satan it's a test that's the only That's the only way to understand this is it's a test. Now, how how do I know this is a test? Well, first of all, if it were a battle or a war, then it wouldn't be God's idea. In other words, notice God is the one that suggests Job to Satan in the first place. Satan comes in. God engages him in conversation. Satan tells God, what he's been doing, and then God says, have you considered 
my servant Job. That's not a war. It's a test. And notice that Satan doesn't say, well, who is Job? Well, I don't know Job. I've never met Job. Where does Job live? Tell me about Job. Who is this Job that you speak of? Notice that doesn't happen. Notice Satan is fully aware of who Job is and know, already knows all about him. In other words, notice, notice what, what Satan says about Job. Have you not already made this hedge around him, around his household and all that he has on every side? How does Satan know that? Because he's been trying to get to him. He's been trying to attack him. He's been trying to hurt him. He's been trying to, to destroy him, but he couldn't get to him. And he knows that if he can't get to him, it must be because God won't allow it. And so then God grants permission. You see, he's already tried to get to Job in the past. And he's been unsuccessful. So there's two things that we can uh, learn here about evil and about Satan, uh, Satan and his, his maneuvers. And here's what they are. First of all, these two things are, we're going to learn a little bit about satanic activity and about satanic philosophy. Activity and philosophy. So let's talk about these two things. All right. First of all, evil's activity. Now, what has Satan been doing? When God, who is omniscient and knows all things, uh, he doesn't ask Satan a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's simply uh, engaging him in conversation and setting up what he ultimately wants to do. But what is it that Satan says that he's been doing? Well, his activity is clear. He's been continually roaming the earth looking for someone to attack and undermine. But in order to do so, he must find someone who is vulnerable. Now, clearly, there are plenty of people who are vulnerable. But also what's clear is that Job was not one of those people. And so what does God do? Points Satan at the one that he wants him to engage with so that God can then teach us what it is God wants to teach us. Now, we know that this is Satan's activity because even Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. But notice what is the very next thing the Bible says after that verse. Yes, he, he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But then it says, resist him steadfast in the faith. That although we have this enemy who is like a lion seeking whom he may devour, we can resist him in faith. So if we can resist him in faith, meaning that what, what is faith? Faith is our, our trust. How much, how much our faith is in God is how much we trust God. How much we uh, believe the things he says about it, who he is. How much we believe that his character and nature are as they are revealed in Scripture. So faith and trust, those two things go together. That's a good way to always understand 
uh, whether or not we're being faithful. Are we trusting? So when do we give the adversary an opportunity to attack? If faith is our ability to resist the devil, then what causes us to be vulnerable so that the activity of the enemy can cause harm in our lives? And that's when we neglect God's word by choosing our way over his way. You see, again, it's, a, it's an issue of trust. When we look at the word of God, do we trust the word of God? Do we act on the word of God? Well, whether or not we act on it is going to be determined by how much we trust in it. And so his activity is he's constantly seeking whom he may devour. Now, you need to remember this. As many of us are sort of in our uh, some form of self-quarantine, whatever that may look like, we're at least limiting our um, exposure to other people. And it can put us in a vulnerable position if we're not careful because we can be excluded from our community of faith. We can be excluded excluded from the things where we draw encouragement and, and, and spiritual vitality. And we need to realize that it's more important now than ever that we connect with people in whatever ways we can, whether that's on the phone or through social media or email or whatever the case may be. You need to be interacting with people intentionally and on a regular basis during this time because we're vulnerable, the book of Proverbs says, when we are isolated. So we need to be careful about the activity of evil during this time. Now, what about the philosophy of Satan or evil's philosophy? Well, Satan has a very simple philosophy. It's very, very simple. And you could sum it up this way. His philosophy is me first. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. You see, from the very beginning, Isaiah 14 tells us about the fall of Satan and how that happened. And here's what the scripture says. Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, now listen to what he said in his heart. I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You see, this is why, this is the way Satan thinks. And this is the way he thinks that we all think deep down inside. It's sort of the cultural philosophy of our day. It's look out for number one. Or I'm not going to bow down or be in authority to anyone. Or I'm going to be my own God. Or I'm in control of my own destiny. You see, all of that is this, it's evil's philosophy. Evil wants us to believe that we are in control of our own destiny, that we're the ones who determine what we'll do or where we'll go. And so his accusation of Job is 
One, that he's looking out for himself, that he's worshiping God. But underneath that, all Job really cares about is what he's receiving for God. You see, his accusation of Job is that Job ultimately thinks just like Satan does, just like many people in our culture do, that it's me first. And so I'll do something, no matter how hard it is, but it's all predicated on what am I going to get out of it? What's in it for me? And notice in in verse 12, When the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. And then the Bible says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. That that The indication there is that Satan didn't waste any time. The minute he got the green light to attack Job, he jumped. He pounced right on it. He couldn't wait. But also, verse 12 shows us some other things. It it shows us how God sets the boundaries of Satan's activities. You see, notice God is very specific about the boundaries he gives Satan. These are the areas of Job's life that you can touch him, and this is the area of his life that you cannot. And what's interesting is, is that of all the people in the universe... Satan would be the least trustworthy person, the least likely to obey the rules. And yet, when it comes to God's rules, Satan can't break any of them. He's not allowed to. He can't. He knows that he's bound by what God has said. Just like the demons when they come in contact with Jesus They know that whatever he says, they're bound to. That's why they're so fearful and afraid of the presence of God. Now, as we we read the, the next section of verses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep in mind that as these things unfold, Job doesn't know anything about this. In other words, Job hasn't been privy to this conversation. He doesn't know this is coming. This completely blindsides Job out of nowhere, which is why I titled this part, The Bomb Drops, because that's exactly what happens. It's like a bomb dropping into Job's life out of nowhere. It's a, it's a beautiful sunny day, and suddenly this unexpected Dreadful, tragic news begins to bombard Job's life. Look at verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking while in the eldest son's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them away. And yes, killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine with their eldest brother at his house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, when you read this, it, it can seem a little bit otherworldly. Like, how can this much tragedy befall a person? How, can, how, is, how could it be realistic for your entire world to come undone in one instant. And yet, I don't think that at all. I think about the moments and times in my life where I've been with people when their entire world in one instance has become undone you know I've shared the story before where uh, I was sitting in my office one morning and uh, suddenly I just felt the spirit of God just impress upon my heart that I needed to get in my truck and drive to New Orleans and go to Oshner because Scott and Anna Griffin were there and uh, their little boy, Asher, was having a procedure. Now, this wasn't Asher's first procedure, and he had had procedures before and has had procedures, heart procedures since. Uh, but, and if those of you that know that family know that whenever he has a very uh, intense, serious uh, surgical procedure done, he usually goes up to uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And so he was over in New Orleans, but I just felt like I needed to go. And so I got in my truck and I drove to New Orleans. And I remember when I got there, I was uh, trying to find the pediatric surgical ward. And I was even thinking to myself, like, you know, this is crazy. Like, you know, what am I even doing here? I'm sure everything's okay or, you know. But anyway, I'm looking around trying to find them. And, you know, it took me a minute and I got some bad directions and, so it was probably 20 minutes while I was wandering around until I finally got to the right floor and found the right place. And I remember that I got out of the elevator. And uh, just as I turned the corner to look down the hallway towards the pediatric surgery department, I could see 20 feet in front of me, Scott and Anna standing in the middle of the hallway. I could see it like it was just yesterday. And they're facing the, the doors that go into the surgical area. And they're just standing there. And there's a nurse who comes out. And right as I get up to them, they don't even see me. The nurse says, he's flatlined. And right in that moment, their whole world came undone. 
and it's like a blur. All I remember is grabbing the two of them and we just sort of like fell down on our knees and we were just crying out to God and and all of this commotion is going on through my head and through all, everything that's happening and we're we're just sort of like it's almost like you're you're free falling out of an airplane and you can't find the ripcord or you don't have a parachute and everything is just undone in that moment and i don't really know how much time elapsed it it just seemed like a blur and then suddenly there's a the door swing open and these feet come out. I remember just looking up and, and the nurse is back out there and she said, we have a pulse. You talk about a roller coaster moment. This is what Job is facing right here. Moments where I've walked into a hospital room at the very moment that the doctors and the nurses look at the wife or the children and say your loved one's gone not that you've been expecting this to come or expecting this to happen but one minute they're there and the next minute they're not and it's everything is undone. Everything is unwound. Everything that seemed to be in one instant is just a complete and utter frayed fiasco. You see, these are the moments in life where there's no explanation. You, you don't get an explanation as to what happened. You don't, you don't know. Hang on. There. There's no explanation. Sorry about that. My computer went to sleep. There's no explanation. And it's the silence of heaven that becomes the devastating and shocking news on earth. It's you. Something horrible happens and you don't know why. I mean, how do you how do you there's no there's no reason why there's no way of you, you're, you can yell and scream and shout and cry, but you're not getting an answer. Job's not getting an answer. He's just there to sort of take in the shock and the, the situation of, of everything that's just befallen him. I mean, this is life's absolute lowest point. Everything, one minute. Listen, he's looking out the window of his house and the oxen are out plowing in the field and he feels joy in his heart because his children are celebrating together and everything is fine. And then, boom, it's not. The only one taking delight in this moment is this supernatural creature who caused all of this to happen. You see, Satan is getting great delight from the pain and the agony of what Job is going through. And I want, you to, I want you to pay close attention to this. I want you to notice how Satan doesn't incrementally 
uh, move in to create pain and suffering in Job's life. You know what Satan does? He does the same thing to Job that he does to me and he does to you. Satan does everything he's able to do immediately. He takes advantage of every liberty that he has. He hates God's people and God's plan so much that whatever he can do, he will do. And that's something we need to remember. He, he doesn't, notice he doesn't just start by doing one thing and then let's wait a couple of days and see how he does and then turn up the heat. He brings it all at one time. Believe me, whatever Satan can do in my life and your life, he will do. You know, I don't know, the book of Job doesn't tell us how much time passes between this news in verses 13 through 19 coming to Job and then the response that we're about to read. I don't know if, if it was just in these next following moments or if it was even after Job buried all of his children and, and went through all the pain of, a, of having funerals. I mean, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I know that he was in absolute anguish. And the very next verse says, Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. Now, I want you to notice that he doesn't blame God or shake his fist in anger. You know, so oftentimes when we suffer and when we struggle, we are, when something happens to us, we're looking for justice. We want the, we're, we're declaring the injustice of what's happened, that we didn't deserve this. God, how could you let this happen to me? And we want to begin to blame God or shake our fist and say, God, how could you do this to me? I did this and I did that. Therefore, I somehow deserve for you to, 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 not allow this to happen to me. That's not what Job does at all. You know, C.S. Lewis has an amazing quote when the question is asked, why do the righteous suffer? C.S. Lewis says, well, why not? They're the only ones that know how to handle it. And that's so true. You see, what Job does instead in this moment is... <clears throat> His first thought is of what God had first given. In other words, notice this is so important for me and you to get. Job's perspective. Listen, he had just lost everything. He was in agony and, and, and misery beyond our comprehension. And yet... With all of the pain and all of the bewilderment and the suffering that he was facing, what was his primary focus upon? Not what he had lost, but on what God had given. It's an amazing, amazing principle that we can see here. And it makes us ask the question, well, what is your first thought in suffering? What is your first thought when Hardship and pain befall you. 
do you first think about all that God has given or are you, as so oftentimes we are, consumed instead with what we've lost? So Job goes on in verse 21 and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return here. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. What a teachable moment God creates here and gives us access to. See, This teaches us that if Satan had his way, that every one of us would be in Job's situation. That Listen, you know the only reason why we're not in Job's situation today is because God won't allow it. Because if God, whatever inch God would give Satan, he will take it. And so, take comfort that if you are not today where Job is in this moment, it's because God won't let him. Because if he could get you there, he would get you there. Now, what else does this teach us? Boy, Job teaches us so much here. He shows us that the way in which we should view our material possessions. You notice how Job has lost everything. And, and as I said earlier, it is so clear the kind of father that Job was, the way that he loved his children, and, and just the way that they existed as a family. And yet notice the way all of the things that he's acquired in his life and all the possessions that he has. And it shows us that Job would say, well, whether we live in a penthouse or a pup tent, I had to look it up. I couldn't figure out, is it a pop tent, a pup tent, a pop tart? I don't know what it is. Then no matter which way, penthouse, pup tent, we'll leave this world the way we came in. Naked in, naked out. That's the way life works, no matter how you want to believe it. So, our focus should always be not on what we have, but on being good stewards of what we have. You see, what, what this tells me about Job is that what made Job a righteous man, what made him blameless, what, made, what makes him a person who, who lived his complete life in devotion to God is that he saw all that he had as being a gift from God that he was required to steward. Because you can tell that by the way he responds to losing it all. You see, you could sum up the entire theme of chapter 1 in three very simple words. Hold everything loosely. That's what Job teaches us. You know, in a time like this when so many people are vulnerable and afraid and scared and they 
are afraid to go outside. They're afraid to get sick. They're afraid of what's going to happen. Is the economy going to crash? Are we all going to be destitute? Are we going to run out of food? Or is there, you know, do we... Do we possibly have enough trees on earth to make enough toilet paper to supply the United States? Well, what we need to do is hold on loosely. What we need to do is realize that it's not about the things that we have or the things that we don't have. It's about the God that we serve and our relationship with Him and that He is the priority and He is the one who sustains us. And so it's very easy in a time of ease and leisure and plenty to to convince yourself that you are uh, somehow, you know, making your life safe. and, And you are, I mean, how many times in the last week have we thought about how As soon as all this is over and life begins to move back to whatever new normal is, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to stockpile a bunch of stuff so that if this happens again, I'm ready for it. Now, you see, I'm not not necessarily saying that's a, a, a bad idea or an ungodly idea. I'm simply saying that it's just an illustration of how we are so desperate to put ourselves in control and to, you know, make whatever adversity may come our way negligible by our actions. When what Job teaches us is that, listen, if God lets the rains go on your enemy, all the preparation in the world isn't going to make a difference. It's going to keep, it's not going to, it's not going to make the, the pain that he desires to inflict on you any less, what is going to make it less is if you are spiritually prepared. If you view all the things in your life, all the possessions in your life as gifts from a good God, that it's not the thing that's important, but it's the fact that your father entrusted them to you. No matter how much or how little you have, it's been entrusted to you by a good father, and your job is merely to steward it to be a good steward of it. That's really the perspective that we need to have in a time of uncertainty. So, here's some principles for us. If our love for something becomes greater than our love for God, then our suffering is going to derail our relationship with God. You see, what if, if we love something more than we love God, then we have set ourselves up for disaster because it's only a matter of time before suffering comes. And when it comes, we're going to collapse because what is the suffering going to center around? The removal of that which we have put above God. Or how about this principle? In order to respond to God with worship in our suffering, We must love God more than what we've lost in our suffering. You see, Job not only teaches us how to prepare for suffering, but then he teaches us how to respond when suffering comes. He shows us that it's 
the right response of worship can only come when we love God more than what we've lost. You, you see, this is why God, this is why Job is not, is able to respond in this almost just seemingly superhuman, unbelievable way is because this is how much he loves God. Remember, his trust in God is immense. He immensely trusts God. And so when everything that God has given him disappears, rather than clench up his fists in anger, he trusts the God that he's always trusted, whether he has plenty or whether he has nothing. You see, I'm not going to respond rightly if what God took away from me was my God. If I was worshiping the things that God had entrusted to me, then when I lose those things, I have no chance, no opportunity to respond rightly in suffering and uncertainty. But Job's great comfort in the midst of suffering is completely and utterly centered in his confidence in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. If you see God as sovereign and good, and those two things are preeminent over all, over all the things that you have in life, all the blessings, all the, uh, the, the, the things that you're able to steward, all the things that God's done, no matter how big, no matter how small, if over all of that, every circumstance, every situation, you believe that God is sovereign and that He's good, then you have positioned yourself to be able to respond rightly and find great comfort in God regardless of your circumstances. You will not ebb and flow with whatever's going on around you. You see, we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to respond in our moment of suffering? Will we turn from God or will we turn to God? Will calamity and suffering make us pull away from God? It's interesting over the years when people have gone through great suffering, I've watched them sometimes press so deeply into God and and press into God's people and press into the things that God has for them. And in a time of great angst, you know, they're, 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 they're early to church and sitting up towards the front, Bible open, ready to go, ready to receive. They understand what they need. And then other people, when they suffer great loss, you don't see them. They disappear. And then you reach out to them and you visit them and you call them and they say, it's just too painful. I, I, I just can't, you know, right, I'm not ready. I need to be by myself. It's a, it's a wrong view of who God is. We should, we should be turning to God in our suffering, not turning away from Him. So what can we learn from Job chapter 1 and the coronavirus? What are the lessons of this last week? I mean, there are many. I think, uh, you know, I think about how much work and effort it took just to be able to do this. Literally, we made the decision to do this 24 hours ago. And I'm just so grateful for 
Kevin and our staff and all the work that they put in to make this even a reality that we could do this. But I mean, it's been a it's been a roller coaster for all of us, for me, for you, for all of us together. And it probably will continue to be for some weeks. But what are some lessons that we can learn from our current adversity and also from the adversity that we can see in Job chapter one? Well, let me give you some things that God's shown me. First of all, suffering and loss always result in change. You see, here's what happens to Job. When, when Satan begins to bring calamity on him, it's change. One minute, these things, your oxen were there, your children were there. All of these things were there, and now they're gone. It's change. Just like one minute, we're going along, and we just assume that on every Wednesday night, we'd all be together, and I'd be standing before you face to face and teaching you the Word of God, and yet in an instant, it's gone. Change. That hardship is what's built into hardship and suffering is change. Things are going to change. Even if they don't change physically, they're going to change. We don't come through hardship and pain and go right back to the way things always used to be. That's not how it works. Even if things go back to the way they were, which they almost never do, the experience of suffering changes us. We need to understand that tonight. That you know what? This is going to change us. And we need to be proactive. We need to be open to what God wants to do in and through us so that it changes us for the better. So that it makes us stronger. That it makes us more dependent upon Him. More locked together and independent and interdependent upon one another. That we become a stronger people, a better people through this adversity than we would have been without it that we're able to reach out, that we're able to serve people in new and creative ways because of this adversity, that apart from this adversity, we would have never been able to do. That we can look back and say, was the coronavirus a difficult season? Yes. Did it force us into difficult situations? Yes. Did people we love suffer? Yes. But oh, look how God made us better. Look how he made us stronger. Look how he gave us a deep appreciation for one another. Look at how two weeks ago I preached about the importance of community. None of us could have dreamed that we'd be doing this tonight. But now we can see that every time we open the Word of God and we hear the teaching of the Word of God, we should remind ourselves it's not just another sermon. It's not just another teaching. It's God speaking to us. He's telling us we need to know these things. You know, we need to understand and and say, God, what you're saying to me tonight, how do I need to use this? How does this change the way I look at tomorrow? Because it's not, we're not just ticking away grains of sand in an hourglass. But we're, these are defining moments in our life where we meet with the living God and He's sharing things with us that He wants us to know. The experience of suffering changes us. So we want to move forward. But here's what we, we, we're, we're in digital Babylon. We're not going back to Jerusalem. 
And if we go back to Jerusalem, it won't be the way it used to be. See, once Jerusalem never returned to the way it was. It was always different because of suffering. And it's going to be the same for us. So we're not going to return to the way things were, but here's what we need to understand. But we do want restoration to come. We want God to mend this coronavirus season. We want this, we want this to be restored. We want things to, be, to come back to whatever the new normal is so that we can take the lessons that we've learned and we can move forward. But in order for that to happen, we need to understand some things about restoration. It requires us to release our resistance to change. Listen, if you're hanging on to yesterday, if, if you all you can think about is things getting back to exactly the way they used to be, then you're never, you're never going to be satisfied and you're always going to be broken and trying to figure out what happened and what's wrong. It's not going back to the way it used to be. It's going to return to something. But when we get back to what becomes normal, it'll be new. It'll be different. We'll be changed by this experience. And we need to let go of that. Release your resistance to change. That's a principle that God has driven deep in my heart through this experience. Next, I would say, Well, I would try to say that I absolutely hate technology with all my heart, with all my heart. But restoration begins the moment we stop defining ourselves by our pain. Nope, too far. We'll back up. That's when restoration is going to begin. See, so oftentimes when we are suffering or struggling, listen, if, if you get diagnosed with the coronavirus or if someone you love does or, or God forbid, some, someone who's vulnerable or elderly that you love that's close to you contracts this virus and it ultimately leads to their death. Well, that's going to be a horrible thing. But listen, whatever suffering has befallen you, it is so critical that in your heart and your mind, you don't define yourself by your pain. You are not what you have suffered. You see, your suffering is not your, it is not the, the, the essence or definition of who you are. You're so much more than that. You're God's son or God's daughter. You still serve a God who's every bit as great and awesome and mighty and holy and righteous as he ever was before any of this happened. And do not forget that. You see, it begins when we accept that we, we can't keep going the way we've always been. We can't do that. What we have to do is instead ask God to give us the power to move on where we are. We, we're not... We're not going to keep moving the way we've been. We're going we're to be changed by this experience. 
and we're going to adjust into some new setting that God puts us in. And what we need is God's power to propel us forward in the place that we find ourselves. And that begins when we ask him to give us a new perspective, a larger framework to see, a timeless glimpse into how our suffering point becomes our turning point. There you go. How our suffering point becomes our turning point. Now, throughout this book, there's going to be this question over and over and over. And Job is going to ask this question. And you and me are going to ask this question as we walk beside Job and we experience all these things with the Job that he experiences. And here's the question Job's going to ask. He's going to ask, why? Why, God, why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? What is, why, what is the reason behind this? And you know what he's going to get as an answer? Who? He's not going to get the answer to why. He's going to get the answer to who. Because every time he asks why, the who of who God is is going to come to the forefront. God's going to answer his question why with this is who I am. This is my character. This is my nature. That Instead of answering why God's telling us what we really need to know is not, we don't need the answer. What we need is a deeper understanding of who God is. Because whenever God tells us more about who he is, what we get is all the answer we'll ever need. It's all the answer we'll ever need. It breaks my heart to think about some of the ways that some of you are suffering. And some of the things that... uh, the thoughts that you are thinking and the fear that you're facing and the anxiety and the worry. And I want you to know that your heavenly Father's on the throne and that we're going to press into this and we're going to walk through this. And it may feel like the valley of the shadow of death, but our shepherd is going to be with us as we walk from where we are to where he wants us to be. And what we need to know now is not why. Why is all this happening? Or, or we don't need to know all the statistics about exactly what's going on or all the people forecasting when it's going to end or how it's going to end. Or They don't know that. You know what I want to know? I don't want to know when it's going to end. I want to know more about God. I want to know more about his character and his nature. I want to see him working through me in the situations and the circumstances that he's put me in. It just blesses my heart to see how so many of you are are finding ways to share your resources with people in need, to be a blessing to people in need. This is an opportunity for the church of the Lord Jesus to move in such a mighty way in our community in our, our country and around the world. 
I just leave you with this amazing quote from A.W. Tozer. He said, a frightened world needs a fearless church. Man, what a blessing. What an opportunity we have. So let's press in to the heart of God and let's love people with a tenacious love. And let's, let's seek out people who are hurting and struggling and in need and let's serve them. Let's care for the people who are going to lose their jobs because of this. They're going to lose their income for some weeks. Let's come together as a community and, and let's raise funds and take care of them. Let's take care of the people in our small groups, in our community groups. Let's take care of people in our neighborhood. Let's take care of people. Maybe, maybe some people where you work, you are able to work, but they're not. Well, then let's work together. And let's rally some people together to try to make sure that people's needs are met in whatever ways we can. Let's show them the love of God. I've said this a thousand times, but I believe with all my heart that God has put us here for such a time as this. It's not an accident that me and you are in this position right now. And I just want to squeeze every little drop of opportunity out of everything that we have to endure. Well, I love you, and I appreciate you being with us, being together in, in this way tonight, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. Let's pray, and you'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the family of God that you let us be a part of. I thank you for all the people around the country that have joined us tonight as we've studied this first chapter of Job. God, I thank you that we have an opportunity that in the midst of the hardship around us, God, when suffering comes to us, that our response will not be to run from you or to question you, but that the response of our heart would be to worship you. God, we worship you tonight because of the coronavirus, because of the, the fear and the hardship that is plaguing our nation and our world, it causes us to want to worship you and to say, God, thank you that I am able to know you in the midst of all of this confusion and suffering, that I am not hanging on the whim of, of what someone on television says or, or what somebody's idea or or forecast of the future is, but Lord, I am safe in your arms. And I worship you in my suffering. I worship you in our hardship. I worship you in a deeper and more desperate and intimate way because of the coronavirus. Thank you. And Lord, if there's more hardship to come, then may we press deeper and deeper into you as it does. God, I know that there's an unlimited resource of your grace and your love through your word. And so we just, we just rejoice in what we've gotten tonight, but we know that there's more we can get tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Thank you. You are good and you are sovereign. And above all things, we trust in that. 
We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you.